Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Bethel University and Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore. I'm Andy Bramson. I'm Mitchell Crum. And I'm Sam Mulberry. And uh, we're bringing you um, a weekly uh, digest of uh, political happenings uh, leading up to and probably post the election. Um, uh, all four of us are professors here at Bethel University. We're going to be bringing in some other folks from time to time, too. But we're going to use this first episode uh, to do a couple of things. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why we're doing this um, and who we are. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about the presidential election up to this point. Um, as the school year for us gets rolling, we're going to talk about where we've been over the summer with this crazy electoral season. And we're going to talk a little bit about whether this is a relatively unique uh, electoral season or whether this is something that we've seen before in certain kinds of ways. So um, to get us rolling here a little bit, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about why we're doing this. Um, Bethel University, if you're listening and are not familiar with our institution, is a liberal arts university university. Uh, of about 5,000 students total, about uh, about uh, 2,500 or so undergraduates. Um, it's a Christian university, and uh, all of us um, are, are approaching political science as uh, um, with an interest in our faith as well as in the political process. And boy, if there was ever a political season and a political time that was marked by rancorousness and incivility, um, as well as the use of certain kinds of religious tropes by both sides of the, of the aisle. Um, boy, it's been this one. So uh, we're going to attempt to sort of bring our perspective to this uh, to this electoral season as political scientists, as well as people of faith, and talk a little bit about what this means for us. So um, I'll introduce myself, then I'll turn over to uh, Professor Brams and introduce himself, and then we'll work our way around a little bit. I've been at Bethel University since 2008. Wow. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a double senior now, I think, <laughs> to double, two, four year, uh, two, four year cycles. And, um, uh, I'm, I teach international relations here. So I teach classes in things like American foreign policy, um, terrorism, uh, international organizations and institutions and, um, and, uh, political psychology is one of my areas of interest. And I think that might come up during this electoral season a little bit. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Stacy. Uh, we have two kids. Uh, Sabrina, who's four, and Tommy, who's one. And uh, Sam's laughing already here. I, I, this is very, like, specific life information. I like this. This right. is, yeah, we're, we're really, you know, <laughs> letting people know who we are. I'm not, uh, my address is. <laughs> <laughs> and his social security number is. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so in, in the era of Facebook and the era of internet of of, of global connectivity, I'm, I'm assuming this I'm eminently findable this sort of thing. Well, and privacy is uncool. So, <laughs> well, tell that to Trump and his tax returns. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. Um, so uh, that that's that's me, um, and uh, I'm glad we're doing this just because uh, we have so many conversations in the hallways amongst ourselves about what's happening in the political process that it just seemed like it made sense to hit the record button and capture a few of those things and maybe share those with our students or other people who are interested in trying to get a little bit more uh, context for this uh, uh, this electoral season. So I'm Andy Bramson. I am uh, been here at Bethel since 2013, so I'm just entering, I guess, my first senior year which means I get to go up for tenure next year, which is super exciting um, and lots of work to do. Uh, my specialties are in African politics and in elections, and in particular in how religion and politics interact. And so I'm particularly interested in um, that topic, which, as Chris has already pointed out for us, is um, going to be really important to some of the, the things we're talking about in this electoral cycle. Um, as far as my family information goes, since that's um, something we're talking about, I'm married to Sarah. Uh, we've been married for 11 years, and we have... Two daughters, Erebus, who's seven, Eleanor, who's four, and a son, Stephen, who's one. And in case you can't tell from my kids' names, I love um, fantasy literature, in particular the works of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. 
Um, I'm also particularly interested in democratization. And so this election is funny because it looks a lot like um, some of the ones in the parts of the world I study normally, um, more like Africa and some of the accusations that are flying around. And so we'll, I'm sure that'll come up in our topics of conversation as well. My name is Mitchell Crum, and I uh, this is my first year at Bethel, and so uh, I'm just getting to getting to know the place here. Uh, I'm coming from Indiana University, where I just wrapped up uh, my PhD work, and I study American politics and political philosophy. I uh, wrote a dissertation on secession, so I think about what it means for uh, states to legitimately break apart, and when that when that is okay, what kind of obligations uh, might be involved, and things like that. Uh, but I also look at American politics, and I've taught uh, courses on Congress and the presidency and elections and uh, ideologies and lots of different lots of different things on American politics. So I'm looking forward to uh, being able to discuss some of those things and especially some of the peculiarities of this of this election. And I'm Sam Mulberry, and I'm the person in the room who's not a political scientist. Um, I teach in the history department here at Bethel. Uh, this is my 16th year, so does that make me a quadruple senior? Or just a senior at this point in, in the other kind of way. Um, yeah, and I'm here um, less as somebody who's going to provide any kind of political insight and more as the person who knows how to hit record. I think that's <laughs> that's kind of my function uh, my function on the, the show. And then kind of I hope to sort of be the uh, the, the voice of the novice who's interested in the election but probably doesn't have all the analytical tools of the folks around me. So um, I hope to be here to ask some questions and push at some of the edges to, uh, to, to see what all we can learn from this. And so you've heard our voices. Uh, you may hear a few others along the way as we get this, po- uh, this podcast rolling. Um, but what we're going to try and do now is an incredibly heroic effort on the part of uh, Mitchell, who we've asked to kind of give us a little bit of a rundown of where we've been so far in this electoral season. Um, boy, uh, boy um, I can't even imagine how you're going to begin this, but we'll, uh, we're going to let you <laughs> run a little bit here. So tell us, how do we get to this point uh, in the electoral process where most people now, those who aren't the uh, the People like us, the political scientists, the party wonks, those who are deeply engaged. People are just starting now to pay attention. Commercials are starting to roll in places like Virginia and Ohio um, and uh, Florida and Pennsylvania. Those people are getting inundated with uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump commercials. But um, how do we get here? How did these two people end up becoming our nominees for president? So when when I was thinking about how to answer this question, since I had a little bit of a heads up, I basically thought about three different three different parts. And there are obviously lots of different angles you could come at. Maybe Andy and Chris and Sam will want to bring some of those up. But uh, there are bas- three basic uh, areas that I thought I'd talk about. So the first one is the candidate themselves, and especially uh, talking about Donald Trump. So uh, with, with uh, Hillary Clinton, it's fairly easy. She has been pursuing the presidency for the last... Uh, decade or so. And obviously, when President Obama uh, won the primary back in 2000, uh, 2000 for the 2008 election, that uh, sort of put those th- that those aspirations on hold for her. And now she's back. She's simply continuing on what she's been pursuing for for quite some time. So so for that, it's fairly it's fairly straightforward for Trump. On the other hand, what people often don't realize is that Trump has also been pursuing the presidency for quite a while. And in fact, back in 2012, uh, when Mitt Romney was running, Trump actually managed to get himself on the same stage as Mitt Romney. They made an agreement essentially with the Romney campaign that Trump would be allowed to give an endorsement. But they but the Romney campaign said they would only do it if there were no cameras, no press or anything like that. It would just be in front of anonymous donors. And in fact, when they got there, Trump had arranged for the press and for the cameras and everything else to be rolling. Romney felt like he couldn't back out at that point, And so he was caught on camera and in front of the news media with Trump endorsing him. And this was one of Trump's early moves to actually position himself for this. So one of the things that I think it's important for us to keep in mind as we think about this is that this isn't, you know, Trump sort of wants us to think that this is all sort of like, you know, he's just answering the people's call and he's just sort of come up with this out of the blue. But he's actually been pursuing this for quite some time. And in fact, even uh, over a year ago, he was out on the road going to various uh, sort of focus group type rallies, testing out a lot of his rhetoric. And so he's been actually out there making sure that all of this stuff was going to play, all this stuff was going to work. And so when we hear him speak sort of, quote unquote, off the cuff, he's really thought a lot about what he's going to say. And a lot of this, uh, you know, he's road tested a lot of a lot of his phrases. Now, 
So, so first of all, so that's the first thing to think about is we okay. think about the candidate themselves. We think about Trump. Sure. We should think of Trump as someone who is definitely unconventional in many ways, but he has also been thinking about this for a long time, and he has laid a lot of a lot of plans here. So, you think this is a measured approach in his part, something that he's considered and decided this this is a strategy that's going to work for him? I think so. I think I think I think that's one of the reasons why we're not seeing him really change. I think he has felt like this is the strategy that will work, and to some degree, it has, and that sort of takes us to my other little point on the candidate themselves and that is you know the trump is unconventional because he constantly gets the media uh, all up in a buzz he's always breaking some kind of new uh you know he's some 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 kind of new um you know moral norm or things like that you know for the for the media and so they always get to talk about him and in that way um this is what scott adams of uh, the dilbert comics has said you know <laughs> trump is a master manipulator i think that's a good phrase and way to think about trump um because trump is exceptional at being able to manipulate um the the media and the institutions around him to get the results that he wants uh one question about that uh, looking at the the last couple the last week or so last couple weeks um, one of the things that that I've noticed and heard is that I mean he's really sort of especially dominated the coverage, um, and maybe not in in good ways. But is there a part of this where it hurts someone like Clinton in that just nobody's talking about her? Is that I mean even if they're talking about Trump in ways that are problematic and controversial, is that still better than nobody talking about you? I mean, is that part of the strategy for Trump is to like just as long as you're constantly in the churn being talked about that 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 there's some positives to be gained from that i i think that's the strategy i think what we're seeing over the last couple of weeks is that it doesn't always work that way <laughs> um you know that sometimes you know sometimes all the negative press builds up and there are uh sort of there's a backlash and that's essentially what we're seeing i think chris is probably going to talk a little bit about that here later on uh, but uh so so so, but I think in terms of the pure strategy, if we're just talking about the candidate Trump, um, that's his mindset. He thinks that yes, any kind of coverage is good, um, and that includes constantly, you know, saying the most provocative thing he can think of, and and basically and basically constantly getting the media all turned on him. And even during the Rio Olympics here, he's managed to do that several times to get the media attention focused back on him. And and in that way, and so and so when we look at Trump, we need to think in in those terms. He's very good at manipulating the media. He's very good at. And, and, he, and he's thought a lot about this. So that's, so that's essentially Trump, and, and he wants this. Uh, and the second, the second thing to think about, I think, when we look at, ask how we got here, is to think about our party institutions and the media institutions a little bit. Yeah. And in that way, when we look at this, you know, I don't want to give the whole spiel, you know, you can take our classes or, you know, read about, you know, going back to the 68 <laughs> we'll nomination. you, too. Yes, okay, yeah. So, I mean, we can go way back in the past, uh, you know, all the way back to the founding, really, and how the parties got started and the nominating process and all that. But essentially, what I want to just sort of fast forward to is the, is the most recent sets of rules. And essentially, what the Republicans have done in setting up their, their rules for their nominations is they have tried to make it so that their nomination process will be over extremely fast. They wanted it, they, they have set it up so that even though they, they claim that there's sort of a certain proportionality window where the, where the delegates will be divvied up more proportionally, maybe I should take a step back and explain that for a second. So yes, essentially, please. when we talk about a president being nominated. What really happens when you cast your vote is you're not necessarily voting directly for the candidate themselves. You are voting for a slate of delegates that will then go to the national convention who will then be the ones who select the nominee. So, for example, if here in Minnesota, um, if you cast your vote for Marco Rubio or for Donald Trump or for Ted Cruz or on the other side, if you cast it for Sanders or Clinton, um, you aren't actually directly voting for them. You are voting for a slate of oftentimes in some states. I'm not sure being a newbie to Minnesota. I'm not sure how it works in Minnesota In Indiana, where I'm coming from. You actually could then select the delegates that you wanted. You could actually pick the specific delegates that you wanted to send, um, which is just this massive list. Most people don't even fill it out because they've never heard of these people before and so some states just leave it off some states just leave it off and so here i'm not sure how it works here in minnesota if you actually get to vote for the delegates but essentially that's what you're voting for you're voting for for a slate of delegates and when and the rules for the party are that the delegates have to vote at least in the first vote for the person that the state voted for that they that they were actually appointed to go and vote for um now without getting too much into the weeds that if there's multiple votes, if nobody gets a majority at the convention, then they start to have more wiggle room in terms of who they can support. Um, but essentially, the important thing for us to remember is that when you vote, you're voting for delegates. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we, when we uh, come then to the actual selection of the candidate themselves at the convention, the, the delegates at the convention are voting for who's then going to be the nominee. All right, so... 
now we now now we can get back to the more interesting part here and think about okay how are these delegates divvied up in the in the Democratic Party they are divvied up proportionally uh, pretty much across the board there are some rules that get a little bit sticky and we can talk about that but for the most part it's just proportional and so if Hillary Clinton wins sixty percent of the votes in a state and Bernie Sanders wins forty percent Hillary is going to get sixty percent of the delegates Sanders is going to get forty percent so what this means is and we saw this especially in two thousand eight it's very difficult sometimes for a candidate on the Democrat side to lock up the nomination. You know, the fight can just go on and on and on because even if a candidate like President Obama keeps winning, they can't quite get enough delegates to pass over the edge to have enough delegates to win. And this was the narrative around Bernie Sanders. Uh, People who were studying the delegates knew that Hillary Clinton had this nomination wrapped up, but Sanders was able to kind of keep accumulating delegates over time in a way that allowed him to remain part of the media attention. Yes, absolutely. So this is so on the Democrat side, which, of course, I know we're I'm focusing more on the Republican side because that's more what people are asking about. But, yeah, that's absolutely right. So when we think about the Democrats, we we actually saw an example of that this year as well. Um, So when we look at the Republicans, though, the Republicans don't want that to happen. They feel like it damages their candidate. They feel like they want things to just be over very, very quickly. And so most of the contests on the Republican side are winner take all or now this year it's winner take most which still for the most part amounts to winner take all so when you look at most states they have the they have the rules set up so that for example you if you if you get a majority in a district you get all of the delegates in that district um, and of course if you then have broad support across the state you're going to win all the delegates all right and the, for the republicans this is how most of the states are done some states actually are like uh, like ohio just are winner take all like you get the majority of the votes in the state for that party you get all the delegates and so what this means is of course, you can accumulate a lot of delegates extremely fast. And so you will build up delegates and actually lock up the nomination very, very quickly. And this is what the Republicans uh, want to happen. They wanted things to be done. Now, of course, the thing for us to think about then as political scientists and people who are informed politically is who does this advantage? And these rules are going to advantage candidates that have a couple of different things. Number one, it's going to advantage the candidates that already have a lot of name recognition. Mm-hmm. So if you are already well-known, um, for those early states where, the, where there hasn't been a lot of campaigning yet, you are still going to be known. You know, we saw this with Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. You know, there's a, a bunch of people running. Nobody knows a lot of their names, but they know Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so that's a main way that he got to be governor of California is name recognition. And so in these early states, we see that. So the candidates with a lot of name recognition are going to be advantaged for the Republican primaries. The second thing is candidates that have a lot of money. So if you already have a lot of donors, a lot of money in the can to be able to do early campaigning, you're going to have a lot of advantages uh, to lock up those early states. Whereas people who are less well-known, who are going to have a lot more trouble getting money, they're going to have a lot more trouble building up momentum, getting ads out there and getting people to know who they are and building up a campaign organization. And so in the past, we've seen this. We've seen people like John McCain locked up the Republican nomination very, very quickly. Someone like Mitt Romney, somebody who had a lot of name recognition, a lot of money, a lot of donor support. They locked up the nomination very, very quickly. But then, uh, you know, if you look, if you read the New York Times uh, six months ago, they were saying, I don't know if they attached a percentage thing, but basically they were saying Jeb Bush is going to be the nominee. And they were saying Jeb Bush has these things that we've seen in the Because he's got the name recognition. He's got tons of money. Exactly. He has the support of the party. Um, and, and, you know, and so and so and so it looks like Jeb Bush is the guy to beat. He's he's the main he's the main guy. And the New York Times is basically running with this. They're saying, you know, he has all the characteristics of candidates who have won in the past. Like being named Bush, for, for example. Exactly. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So it's worked for two other guys. So anyway, so when we look at this, uh, we, we might look at this and we might say, well, and, and, and a lot of times what this has allowed is in political science where there's this very strong, long-going thesis that basically the party decides, yep. that the parties through things uh, you know, behind the scenes, guiding the donors, making sure who, who gets name recognition. We saw this actually with President Obama, too. One of the main reasons that he rose to prominence is because the Democratic Party, the party got to decide who was going to be given some of those primo slots at the convention for speaking. One of the main ways that President Obama was elevated was because, you know, I'm going to keep using this phrase. His 2004 campaign speech. His 2004 campaign speech. And so the party decided basically to elevate Obama. And so he actually, you know, was was elevated for that reason. A lot of people miss that. They don't see the sort of, and that's the idea, right, is that the party is behind the scenes making these things happen. Which is actually, we've actually moved away from that kind of system. We've Both parties have democratized their selection processes. You know, uh, the, the, the I'm not going to use the, the, the old uh, old uh, old chestnut here, but both parties used to choose their candidates in a smoke-filled room, oh, right? Yeah, exactly. And both sides now have moved towards these open primaries, these open systems, which allow more voters to 
necessarily have input, but the parties do still hold on to a significant amount of influence in how these candidates are selected. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So uh, when we and so and so when we look at this. What, one of the things we might think about then, we think about money, we think about name recognition. There's one candidate who might be able to upset that apple cart. And of course, it's easiest for us to see this in hindsight. But of course, there's very few people who are less well known in terms of name recognition than Donald Trump. And there's few people who have, at least in theory, uh, as much money uh, to back up what they're doing as, as Donald Trump. Now, he hasn't used his money. He simply relied on his name recognition as, and his manipulation of the media for the most part. But nonetheless, he is somebody who had a lot of money and a lot of name recognition and was able to secure the nomination in that way. So those are the first two things I want to talk about. Yep. The third thing that I think we need to think about, and I don't want to go on too long here, so maybe I'll just mention this. No, you're doing fine. Uh, and then I will, and then I'll, and then and then I'll um, let go here. The third thing to think about is the voters and sort of some of the changes we've seen, particularly in the Democratic Party, or not. I'm sorry, the opposite of that, the Republican Party. <laughs> the changes we've seen in the Republican Party over the last uh, couple of decades. So we've seen a couple of things. So number one, we have seen a movement towards more and more extreme expressions of 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 policy positions. So one of the things we've seen, especially when we saw the rise of the Tea Party, we've seen the rise of a number of different groups, the strengthening of the NRA, things like that. And we look at these things, we see a lot less room for compromise. People are much more uh, adamant about their chosen issues, that we want these things absolutely, you know, no, no way to uh, have any kind of middle ground. And so, you know, one of the primary ways that we saw this manifested recently was the ouster of John Boehner. So John Boehner, who was extremely conservative by pretty much any measure, um, but nonetheless, if he was going to actually accomplish things as the Speaker of the House, he felt like he had to compromise. And this wasn't good enough for a uh, small but very vocal and fairly influential uh, slip, uh, you know, set of, of Congress people who were able to get him pushed out of the, speaker, uh, of the Speakership. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at this, we think about where, why Congress people do what they do. Well, they do what they do primarily because of the electoral incentive. And so this means that there are voters who are pushing them to be more extreme, and they're always worried about a primary challenge. And so leading then into the presidency, this means that people want more and more extreme statements of policy and of views. And so one of the things we see from Trump then that we don't often see from other candidates is he says extreme things. He's very willing to say the extreme uh, thing and to take the extreme position, even if he then takes another extreme position the next day. You know, he's willing to say the extreme things, which is what voters seem to, especially on the Republican in the, on the Republican side, seem to want a lot more of. They want the extremes. Well, particularly the voters that are voting for Trump. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Which is to say that that's not even a majority of the people voting in the primaries for the Republican Party. But it was a significant enough minority that he could capture and rely upon that he was able to uh, knock out more of his uh, opponents over time. People who just couldn't get enough air because Trump was consuming all the media air. People like Rubio uh, and Bush and, and mm-hmm. Christie and others. And ultimately he was left with Ted Cruz, one of the other uh, um, candidates who was willing to <laughs> ma- also make extreme positional statements and capture some of those diehard voters who are voting in Republican primaries, just like the diehard Democrats are voting in the Democratic primary. And just to give a little perspective, too, on sort of the amount of tr- votes that Trump won. I mean, Trump likes to talk a lot about how many votes he won. He won a record number of votes, which is true mm-hmm. in the Republican primary process. He won about 14 million votes, which sounds impressive and is impressive, I think, for the Republican primaries. But it's also less than 5 percent of the population of the United States. Right. So in, in comparison with what he would need to win to win the presidency, we're talking about, you know, to win the presidency, he probably realistically needs something more like 65 million. Um, so, you know, again, 14 million is not nothing, but it is also a pretty small slice of the country. So the question comes back to sort of something Mitchell raised earlier, which is, is this strategy which worked very well for him in winning the Republican nomination? Is it a strategy that can work very well for the general election? And that's one of the questions we'll have to think about. And that's why you'll hear uh, political scientists talking about floors and ceilings. Uh, we're not we're not really architects, but what we do think about is what is what is a candidate's floor? That is, what's the baseline group of people who is who are always going to support that candidate no matter what? And what's their ceiling? That's what what's the number of votes they could re- reasonably capture if they're able to mobilize that group of people to show up and vote for them? And the thought on both. I'm stealing maybe a little bit your thunder here, but uh, the uh, the thought on both Trump and Clinton is that they have reasonably uh, solid floors. That is, there's always a group of people who mm-hmm. are going to vote for Trump. There's a group of people who are going to vote for Clinton, especially because Trump is the opponent, and, and vice versa. But the ceilings might be pretty solid for these two. The, uh, whereas President Obama was able in 2008 was able to energize and capture a youth vote and people who don't normally vote. That these two candidates, because of some other kinds of features that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, 
they may not have a ceiling that they uh, a ceiling that they can easily break through and capture a big swath of the American vote. Yeah. So, and I just want to mention one other. I think that's absolutely right, and hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that uh, there in here. But I just wanted to bring up one other thing that I think the Trump candidacy candidacy has done, and this is where uh, Andy and Chris may may have will probably definitely have some things to say about this. But I think one of the things that the Trump uh, has also exposed that 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 uh, the Trump candidacy has also exposed is essentially the two parties right now have really not uh, captured a cer- certain segments of the American population very well. They have not covered their issues well at all. And in many ways, what we're seeing with Trump and the support that Trump has rallied is that is that essentially a lot of voters have uh, you know recognized and perhaps recognized in the past but never felt like they had a candidate who could voice it, that the Republican Party does not really represent uh, some of their core uh, needs very well. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of people in sort of rural areas, or uh, if you want to think about Appalachian areas, or you think about um, a lot of these sorts of areas where manufacturing, the Rust Belt, things like that, uh, areas like that, a lot of people have really been left behind by the economy. And the Republican Party has done uh, little to nothing to sort of alleviate that. We still hear a lot about, uh, you know, sort of rising, you know, rising tides lifting all boats, and we and we hear about trickle down, uh, and that really hasn't materialized. And so a lot of these voters are essentially saying, we want a candidate who actually speaks about uh, the sorts of things that we care about, that at least recognizes us. It's not to say, you know, when I've seen a number of interesting news stories now where reporters go in and they ask, can, and they ask people who are strong Trump supporters, what's his plan that's going to fix these issues? And they say, oh, we don't think he has a plan. You know, they actually come out and specifically say, we know he doesn't have a plan. But they say at least he's addressing us, at least he's saying something about us, and that he's actually speaking about our plight. And I think that is also true in some ways on, on on the Democratic side. They have also, in many ways, left behind these voters. And I think, you know, not to harp on this too much, I know the Republicans bring it up a lot, but it's it's still true, I think, to some degree. President Obama did a lot of damage to himself when he described rural voters as bitter clingers, when he said they are bitterly clinging to God and guns as opposed to voting for their interests. And I think it, that quote in some ways captures the way that the Democrats have also left behind these voters. They don't really see them as having legitimate interests. They don't see them as um, they don't want to actually listen to what they have to say and how they see their interests. And so they basically disregard them. And so I think a lot of these voters uh, have now expressed that uh, in in votes for Donald Trump, even though they recognize and they know, at least many of them know, <laughs> um, that he that he doesn't necessarily have a plan for them. Now, I also want to say, you know, there's definitely other elements to this. There sure. is certainly racism. There is certainly other parts to this. But I think it's important if we're thinking about how we got here, mm-hmm. we're thinking about what's different here. I think one of the things that's different and what we're seeing is an expression of voters who haven't felt like they had a voice uh, up until this election. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think one thing to note, too, about what the president said with the sort of bitter clingers uh, remark, I think Mitchell's absolutely right that that was unfortunate for him. But I also think that, you know, it's it, this demonstrates this nomination process for Republicans demonstrates the president kind of had a point, right, that he the a lot of Republicans felt like they weren't voting their interests when they voted for people like George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney. And we are seeing those people take it out on the process and saying, you know what? Those people, those kind of candidates and reflected in people like Jeb Bush this this time around, um, they're not speaking about what we care about. So we're going to vote for the guy who's saying things that sound a little crazy to other Americans because at least it feels like he's speaking up for us. I and just to, um, I, to put my two cents in on that, I don't think that uh, voters um, who are who are embracing Trump's rhetoric and his appeal to populism that's essentially what we're talking about right, here is populism right. uh this sort of appeal to uh, common uh, uh common a perception of what common americans interests are um then uh i don't think it's an explicit rejection of people like jeb bush or or um marco rubio or some of the others that were predicted to win this nomination process i really think it's an embrace of of what trump was saying to be right. honest those folks bush and rubio and others never really got a chance to be heard uh, one of the things that, that I, th- I think mitchell described so well but that trump was so good at was he sucked the air out of the room uh when every news cycle was dominated by the uh, controversial thing that he said or the controversial thing that he did um there was never really a chance for someone who's a quieter more introverted candidate like jeb bush or even somebody like a marco rubio who's sort of 
build as the Republican Barack Obama, um, these sort of young and enthusiastic, yeah. energetic, there was never space for them to kind of get their campaigns rolling. And money then never flowed into their coffers as well, which is particularly important for, for Rubio's case. Right. And I think I think that's true. And I think it's, um, you know, one, one thing we should probably talk about sometime in one of these podcasts, although I think not today because we have lots on our plate, is what is the media's responsibility in all this and what do they need to do in assessing their role? I mean, they, by some estimates, gave Donald Trump around $2 billion worth of free media during the the sort of the primary campaign, right? That's that's a lot to overcome if you're sitting there as Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or one of the other 14 candidates um, running for the Republican Party nomination. That's a big advantage. Even if a lot of that's negative, people are hearing the name Trump, Trump, Trump an awful lot. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had students to, uh, do a project in my elections class uh, in spring, and one of the things they, they tracked was the media time, and it's simply astonishing. You can't even hardly see the other candidates on graphs um, when you look at the amount of media time uh, in comparison. We talked about that in our American government class this spring, too. It's interesting. Uh, can I ask a question? I mean, you brought up populism, and this is this is one of the things that um, I was excited to, to, to talk to you guys about. Because when I hear that, that word used... Um, at times it's used as as definitely a negative thing. Now, when what you just said was, you know, trying to be the voice of the common person, which doesn't sound like a negative thing, why is this why is populism as a strategy um why why does why why are some why do some people talk about that as if it's a it's a negative thing or a bad thing? At some level, I mean, I'll I'll start this off and others can correct me here. At some level this comes down to how wise do you think the the mob is right i mean is the mob when it expresses a preference making a good decision and the answer to that is sometimes right sometimes they have some good ideas and sometimes they're just doing wild and crazy stuff right and so populism is essentially are you reflecting the will of the people at a given moment and one of the reasons we have representative democracy where we choose people to go make decisions for us is partly an acknowledgement by our founders and implicitly by all of us since then that we don't all have time to make wise decisions and we need people who can actually spend more time reflecting so uh, populism at times can be a corrective to a system that's overly dominated by elites um, to bring in the will of the people, but it can also be a problem because it sort of gets those emotions of the moment that may be very unwise and may be very discriminatory against certain groups um, and tries to make them into policy. And I think that's some of what we're seeing with Trump. Absolutely. And I just to, just to build off of that, too, I think one of the problems with populism, and we're seeing this with Trump as well, is that oftentimes it doesn't express itself in policy outcomes. So a lot of times, you know, just as Andy, uh, you know, very nicely said there, you know, it's, it's basically a lot of emotion. It's a lot of saying this is what this is kind of in general terms what we want. But it doesn't really tell you a whole lot about, well, what exactly is the immigration policy going to look like? And if you think about, you know, Donald Trump's statements uh, on these things, he's all over the map. He'll say things, you know, one day where he says, you know, we're going to ban all Muslims. But then he suddenly you suddenly realize, well, we can't just do that. That's not really something a policy we There's can a tricky do. Constitution in the way that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of problems there, and so then when he tries to even nuance a little bit, then it becomes sort of a question: Well, what is what does this actually mean? What is this policy actually going to look like? And this is where everything gets sort of confused. And I think so. Yeah. So so a lot of times when you think about that, one of the big dangers is it doesn't lend itself to very concrete uh, proposals. The other thing I think is that um, for a, a political scientist and a historian here, when we think about populism. The dark side of populism, populism can be a positive thing, but the dark side of populism is demagoguery. Um, and uh, we've seen uh, sort of the rise of populism be used as a as a prelude to increased authoritarianism, increased uh, dictatorial rule, um, charismatic rule by powerful strongman leaders. Not in the United States as much as as, as around the world. And historically, we've seen the rise of that. Uh, a couple of us are involved in teaching uh, uh, here at Bethel's Christianity and Western Culture class, um, which uh, goes ta- which takes us back into uh, the ancient world. But uh, we see the rise the, the the end of democracy and the rise of authoritarian leadership in in, um, in Roman civilization and Greek civilization brought about by, by by demagoguery and and by you know an appeal to populism in some ways. So. Can I ask another process question? Um, uh, not another, I guess the first process question. Um, you, you you sort of tracked backwards what has happened so far this year. One of the issues that um, that I also hear kind of bubbling up has to do with kind of what. Are there going to be debates, things like that? Like, what to what degree is that 
baked into the process where there has to be or, or is that is that not something is that a, is that really an, something that you can opt out of as a major party candidate so on the one hand yes no, there's nothing that obligates candidates to to be engaged in debates and in fact if you go back to the 1992 uh, election between Bush uh, the first Bush <laughs> uh, and Clinton uh, the first Bush really didn't want to engage in debates and for a long time he sort of put this off he did not want to debate Clinton and one of the main reasons that he did that is because of course he felt like he was the front runner he didn't want to give Clinton a platform, and he wanted to essentially stay away from that. And in, and in the same way, oftentimes candidates who are leading in the polls, they have nothing They have nothing to gain. I mean, they're already winning. They're already uh, out there. Obviously, they've got enough support to win, and so they have everything to lose. You know, if they say something stupid, if, the other can, if they give the other candidate a platform to do something that looks really good, then, you know, then they're going to get a boost in the polls. And so... A leading candidate really has, has has very little to gain. Now, what's different about this election is Trump himself has been the one who is who's who is at this time not not leading in the polls, has been the one who's been saying maybe he doesn't want to do debates. Now, this is just speculation on my part, um, but we have very strong traditions of having debates. Trump has done extremely well uh, in the debates that he's appeared on, and so. Trump being the master manipulator, what happens when he says he's not going to be in debates? He gets a lot of media coverage. So what are his incentives here? He's probably just blowing a lot of smoke to get a lot of media coverage, which has worked. We've seen the media once again saying, are there not going to be debates? Is Trump going to run away from this? Uh, And I, you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen. The Trump campaign is currently in chaos in terms of its leadership. So maybe they won't happen. You know, I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to be saying I'm consulting a crystal ball here, but just thinking in terms of the incentives, it seems that Trump has everything uh, to gain by being in these debates. I agree with that. Although I will add uh, with Trump, I think, I mean, he he did, um, he certainly did win supporters through the earlier debates. One of the differences between those debates and this round is going to be just in the numbers. So in those earlier debates, he was ten, tended to be on stage with at least you know five or six other people. More often, ten ten other people, nine which other people. Which is great for one liners. Which was great not- for yeah. You can do one liners. You can you can talk about how high you're going to build that wall and that kind of thing. You don't have to get into the substantive policies very much. And in fact, there's very little time to do so. Which is why people who did have better policy knowledge, like Marco Rubio, really didn't have a chance to develop that. Uh, there's a lot more time for that when you get to the the actual debates between two candidates, or even if Gary. Johnson somehow makes it in three candidates. I mean, you think about a 90-minute debate, you're going to have 30 to 45 minutes to talk. Um, you can only mention the wall so many times. And so, you know, that's, I think, got to be one of the things in the back of his mind. So is, the convention has shown us that Trump can talk. His convention speech was one of the longest in recent history. Uh, yeah, the longest, I think, since we've started tracking. Um, so it was, it was very long. Uh, whether he can answer questions is another question issue but then i mean maybe maybe he doesn't care about that right maybe he just has to get up there and try to be more charismatic than hillary clinton right. and to be honest that's not a high bar uh so so i i think i agree with mitchell in the end i think he has almost nothing to lose in terms of especially since he's lo- losing right now in the polls um he has everything to gain and so i think in the end he's gonna say i'll do it even if sure. it does conflict with an nfl game yeah I, I, <laughs> that's true um I broadly agree with what what the two of you are saying. I think it's a win-win either way for Trump. He is down in the polls substantially, and and so um, I think this is a clever play because uh, Trump is shown he's very capable of getting on the news, getting on the Sunday on the morning <laughs> yes, shows, uh, getting getting media attention. So um, he's his name. He will be able to get his message out whether he's in the debates or not. He doesn't really need that platform. He right. playing coy with the debate process and pretending like he or not pretending, uh, toying with the idea of maybe not doing the debates will keep media attention on that question when he. Finds Finally, if he consents to do the debates, he looks like he's, you know, he's being civil and complete, uh, compliant with the process, right. which will be a media story as well. And then the debates the last few times, I mean, a little cynical here, are not really debates. I mean, the right. the um, the Romney-Obama debates, the uh, McCain-Obama debates, these, these really weren't debates in the sense of like a Lincoln-Douglas debate or anything, any kind of standard. They were, they're really just joint press conferences, joint dueling press conferences. <laughs> um, and I think in that regard, uh, Trump might be very charming and very charismatic and quite effective, perhaps. Yeah, if he listens to some coaching at all, I think he could. And again, I mean, Hillary Clinton you know, has her strengths as a candidate, certainly, but she's not a very good public speaker. She doesn't come across particularly well in debates. And so I think, you know, with a, a small amount of discipline, if Trump is capable of that, um, would, you know, he could possibly come across very well. Well, and I think well, I think even just the notion of you know parallel dueling press conferences, you get to see the candidates really juxtaposed and and to a degree interacting, um, which I think would be 
would be really interesting um, to, to to see. And I'll say I I didn't watch any of the Republican um, any of the Republican or the Democratic primary debates, so I've never actually I, I haven't I've only seen clips of of Trump in those um, in those settings. Can I ask one more question? Um, and then um, and then we I know Just we have some more. other things we wanted to, to, to talk about. So if I if you will yield to one more question. Um, some of you have lived at a time or lived through elections in states that were battleground states that were really contested states. I live my entire life functionally in Minnesota, which really isn't. I mean, we voted for Mondale, so like, like you know, we're we're kind of we're pretty blue <laughs> we're in pretty lots blue. of ways. Um, wh- so I'm always curious, like, what is it like if you were in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Florida or you know th- those places where it it really is that you know it really is tight. Um, how different is it being a voter in terms of your experience of the election? What does it mean when I hear things like, you know, the Clinton campaign is pumping this much money into ads and things like that? What is it like to live in that? So uh, I guess I'll speak first on this, but yeah. So I up until uh, basically just a couple of years ago, I would I would be in Ohio uh, for a lot of the summer and things like that, right before elections and all that. And basically, what it means is every second or third ad on TV and on the radio is a campaign ad. It is you know when you're sitting there, if you're listening to the radio, I mean, it means that you hear um, you know ads for various campaigns, both attack ads and positive ads, just literally all the time. And you see billboards, you see um, you know the candidates are there. So like Columbus traffic when I was trying to get into Columbus sometimes. Um, to go to Ohio State for for school and things like that would be completely gummed up. Um, you know, for example, you know when John Kerry came came in a few times to Columbus, you know the commute would just be a nightmare. Um, you know, and you see this frequently. I mean, you see this sort of thing all the time because the candidates are constantly there. No, we're we're everything that I've sort of heard so far uh, in terms of this year is that you know Clinton in, in these sort of battleground states pumping all this in and and trump really isn't as much in terms of like the money for ads things like that does this ever backfire in terms of people get because because nobody ever says you know what i love is i love all of the campaign ads so these are things people dislike is if there's if one candidate's doing it a lot i mean the your first sense would be well this was really great right because we're getting our message out is there is there a saturation point where it actually does the opposite? So does not spending that money potentially be helpful? And here's the bad news: this is the horrible beauty of negative campaigning because a lot of the ads you're going to hear are not going to be why Hillary Clinton is so great, but why Donald Trump is so bad, right? And so yeah. what you're impressing on candidate on, on the voters again and again is how evil the other candidate is, how horrible it would be if this person ever got into the White House. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it absolutely depresses turnout. But what you're doing is you're you're depressing turnout from people who you're not sure about. You're going to drive up the so that you're going to drive up the percentage of people that are voting that are actually party loyalists. And you're going to certainly discourage people from voting for the other person because they will have heard again and again and again just how bad this person is. So, you know, I think you're you're kind of you're kind of right. But what it does is basically it lets your base decide it more and then you then you spend money turning out your base and you hope that that does it for you. Yeah, I would, I would equate it to something else that uh, most Americans in general find distasteful, but in pri- in private practice are, are, are actually um, motivated by, and that's Black Friday shopping. Um, <laughs> ask any American about Black Friday that. shopping. And they, oh, what a horrible <laughs> excess that is. People who you know do that are just, you know, except for some, like some small hardcore group of people who are really kind of into it. Um, but in fact, the process of advertising Black Friday shopping doesn't just get people to show up in the stores at 5 a.m. on Friday morning after Thanksgiving, it also causes them to be motivated more generally throughout the rest of the season. You think like, oh, I need to buy Christmas gifts. I guess I ought to go to Best Buy. Um, and so in the same way, I think, that, although we, we we hate the electoral ads, we uh, and people, I grew up in Ohio as well, and so we, you know, we just inundated with these things. Um, and uh, I, I still think that in general, even though you say I hate the process, the process works, and it causes people to vote more often. Um this uh, the, the, that group of small group of battleground states uh, changes a little bit from year to year to year. Uh, this year we're kind of talking about the FOPs, uh, Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. I'm trying to make FOP a thing uh, to refer to those three states. Um, in past years, that group has included North Carolina. Sometimes it includes Michigan. Both of those states have settled a little bit. Virginia, surprisingly, uh, Trump is starting to run some ads in Virginia, but he's down about 10 points in Virginia. And so that's almost off the table now for him as a competitive state. Um, he 
uh, without putting too fine a point on it, he really needs to win the FOP, the Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania trifecta, to have any reasonable path towards the White House. And so, yes, being here in Minnesota, um, I've seen a few Hillary Clinton ads. I've seen no Trump ads yet. Um, they'll show up a little bit, but to be honest, this is not an area that's going to be contested. I think what we'd like to transition to a little bit, if uh, I'm uh, making sure that's okay with my uh, uh, my co-panelists here, is talking a little bit about whether this this campaign is different or similar to other presidential elections in the past. We've already talked a little bit about populism. Uh, Trump is by no means the first populist candidate um, in American history. Uh, we can go all the way back to Andrew Jackson to talk about populism in American Good. politics. Um, we're not going to. Uh, don't worry. You don't need to tune uh-huh. out now. Um, but I do th- want to talk about this. I want to pose a question to the three of you and ask about this. Um, these are, by any modern polling measure, the two most unpopular people ever to run for the American presidency, and they're running yes. against each other. Uh, by a recent poll that I checked before we started recording, Trump has is viewed unfavorably by 70% of the American population. Uh, Hillary Clinton is viewed unfavorably by about 54, 55% of the American population. That's right. Uh, Hillary Clinton would be the most unpopular person running for president, except for Donald Trump, yes. whom she's running against. Does this matter? Yes, I think it does. And I think I mean, it comes back to some of the what Sam was saying and the question he asked about sort of the, the advertising. What does that do? Right. That makes the negative advertising in that sense almost even more important this time around, because what you're really doing is you're going to try to depress turnout and make sure you turn out your base. So that's that's part of the, the story here is got to make sure you consolidate your base and both candidates in theory, have been working to do that. I think Hillary has been more effective at it so far. Uh, I think she's going to get most of the Bernie Sanders people behind her by, from the polls I'm seeing. Um, Trump is continuing to alienate parts of the Republican base. So I think in that sense, this election, even though it is weird because, as Chris rightly points out, these are the two most unpopular presidential candidates in you know since we've been polling. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's, I think, shaping up to look a lot like a usual election, which is that this is about getting your base out. Um, and then seeing what you can pick off from the middle. What's weird is that one of the candidates, Trump, doesn't seem to particularly have much interest in trying to appeal to those middle voters. And so the question is, will he change that strategy? If he does, you know, at this point in the process, can he sell it? I mean, normally, if you wanted to sort of start a strategy of running to the middle, um, you would have started that back in May once you'd clinched the Republican nomination. You wouldn't start that in August and September. And, the you know, to think about the sort of recent upheaval in his campaign that Mitchell alluded to a few minutes ago, um, you know, those changes seem like they look like him sort of, you know, sticking with his strategy and kind of going more so. So let Trump be Trump, um, which, as you know, somebody pointed out in one of the articles I read, may not be a good idea when your candidate is not very popular. One of the things that, that I questions that I have, and, and this this uh, is maybe kind of it's attached to the, the question you're asking. I don't want to come back to that. Um, but whenever we whenever I hear the numbers about how unpopular they are, unfavorable ratings, the thing that that's always interesting or frustrating to me is we're talking generally about this concept of the person not being favorable. But there's lots of things I don't like, but I don't like them in different ways and for different reasons. And I could say I don't like broccoli and I don't like murder. But but that's but but like those are so those are both unfavorable for me, but they're not the same thing. Um, so what I'd be curious, just sort of in the the way of for the way of education, as we're thinking about these two candidates and saying, well, they're unpopular, they're unpopular, they have unfavorable ratings. What makes Trump unpopular? What makes Clinton un- like? Why are they unpopular? Uh, I think that's an excellent question. In some ways, that pushes at some of the weaknesses of polling and some of the things that we can't know. Um, you know, in other words, when some when when these questions are asked, you know, do you view this candidate favorably? You know, what's or what is your thermometer scale on on these candidates and things like that? You know, we don't totally know. Like it could be, you know, for example, it could be somebody doesn't like Trump because he hasn't, you know, stuck to his guns on. Um, you know, Muslim immigrants or something like that, you know, and so maybe they're angry about that. And so they view him unfavorably. So and we don't totally know, you know, maybe there's follow up, uh, you know, on the polling, you'd have to parse through the data a little bit more to try to get that. But a lot of times we don't we don't necessarily have that information. Um, Why is Trump unpopular? I mean, there are uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons that could that could pretty obviously be given. I mean, he's very hostile. He said a number of very alienating things to a lot of different groups. Um, And so there are some pretty obvious uh, reasons there for why uh, Trump isn't popular, and maybe Chris or Andy want to talk a little bit about Clinton. I'll give it a go. go um, yeah, go for it. Uh, 
Hillary Clinton has been in the public eye for um, almost three decades now. And she's, um, I think there's a couple of things going on here which are contributing to a narrative around her. And part of that narrative is that she is not trustworthy. Um, this is uh, a narrative that's been reinforced by um, congressional investigations going back to the early part of her, her husband's presidency. Um, uh, conservative media outlets um, portray her as someone who is um, sort of a conniving political operator. And, and that might be actually the terminology. We've referred a couple of times to Trump as a master manipulator. I think uh, Hillary Clinton's opponents see her as a master operator, um, not a manipulator per se. She's not sort right. of that charismatic kind of uh, leader, but perhaps, but she's a, someone who, who knows the rules of the system and manipulates or uses the rules of the system in a way that, that benefits her, her long-term uh, efforts. Um, and I, th- I think there might be a gender component to this, too, that we should think about, too. We've never had a female president. Uh, the idea of a female president might be off-putting to people. It might even be off-putting to people who say it's not off-putting to them. We had this question come up in 2008 uh, when Barack Obama became our first African-American president. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a, a question of there would be a Bradley effect. The Bradley effect refers to this idea that people who say that they would support an African-American candidate uh, end up not supporting them by about four or five percentage points uh, because people don't want to admit to pollsters that they don't want to support someone based because of their race. And there's a question of whether this exists for gender as well. So that might also be influencing how we perceive Hillary Clinton. Certainly there's a whole a raft of, of, of perceptual things we could unpack about how she dresses, uh, the how her voice is interpreted, other kinds of things that most male candidates don't receive the same scrutiny over. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I would just add, I think there have been a series of um, scandals or you know incidences in, in Hillary's history that have sort of constructed this narrative um, going back to, you know, before her husband was even elected when, you know, sort of Bill Clinton was pitching this as you're going to get two for the price of one almost, you know, Hillary's just as talented as me. Um, you get the 93 health care attempt where she tried to, you know, do something like a little like Obamacare um, that failed. Right. And they sort of got her labeled as the sort of scary big government liberal um, in, you know, for anyone who's sort of moderate to conservative. That was kind of how you thought about Hillary. Um, and she also gets these unfavorable comparisons with her husband. I mean, on the one hand, you know, she doesn't have some of his moral scandals, but she's also considerably less charismatic. So Bill Clinton is I, I, for my money, one of the finest speakers, if not the finest speaker uh, politically in our generation. Um, and it's hard for Hillary to match up to that. He's very good before a group of people. He's very good sort of playing to the room. And she's only at best competent. And that's on a good day. Um, and other than that, she's just not very dynamic. Um, so it's it's hard. And I think Chris is right. And I think there may well be some gender things going on here, in ter- especially in terms of, you know, would a, would a male candidate get quite as much focus on sort of the fact that the voice goes up at the end and they seem, they seem to be yelling, right? Um, I don't know. Um, is that because, you know, she does that only or is it because she's she? Yeah, and just to build off of, of that, I think I think all of these things are absolutely right. One of uh, my uh, colleagues at uh, Indiana University actually did an experiment where they had the exact same um, information uh, on different candidates, only they changed the gender and then presented it to different people, and inevitably the female candidate was viewed more negatively than the than the male candidate, even though they had the same qualifications, the same um, backgrounds, everything else was exactly the same. All of this to say, we might be in for a campaign season moving through September and October into November that is typified by negativity. And I, um, I, we, we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast, we'll continue, we'll come back to this in subsequent episodes. Uh, but we are teaching here at Bethel University, a Christian institution. And um, how do we, what do we make of that negativity? Is this something that we simply need to acknowledge and be aware of as we think about the politics? Or do we have an obligation to combat negativity? Is this a problem for the American polity? I do think the negativity is a problem. Um, how do you, how do you combat that? That's really, really hard. Um, because I come back to one of the sort of unfortunate dynamics of political campaigns, which is that negative campaigning works really, really well. Um, and, you know, politicians have field tested this. They've tried this a lot. And it turns out that that is you know, the way that people win elections. Right. Is um, it's much easier to persuade people that the other candidate is really disastrous than to per- persuade them that you're really, really great. 
Um, and that's especially true when you have people who seem so deeply flawed. So, you know, how, how do we do that? I mean, I think one way is um, I, I like to think in this in this podcast we can set a different tone, right? And even if we are going to point out the flaws of a Hillary Clinton or a Donald Trump, um, that we can do so in a way that's charitable, that we can do so without sort of throwing nasty terms around like crooked Hillary or, you know, Donald Trump's a racist. I mean, like— You just got does, rid of half my shtick, man. I know. I'm just, right. I'm just stealing your stuff, right? But uh, you know, so I, I think that that's, that's a huge part of it. Um, but it's, you know, we also have to acknowledge this is the unfortunate reality of democratic politics is that negative campaigning works really well. And so um, no matter what we do, to some extent, this is probably not going away, uh, much as I wish it was otherwise. So I think one of the things uh, to think about is what, why is negativity so bad? And when I think about the reasons for why negativity uh, is, is, is a problem, one of the first things I think about is, is you know, it goes all the way back to what is politics supposed to be about? And there may be some disagreement. There are obviously a lot of things that politics is about. But one of the core things that I think politics is about is what are we doing together? What are we all in together doing? And when it becomes negative, then when you think about, you know, what, you know, if you think about politics being what are we all doing together? You know, so, for example, you know, you think about the 1960s and the positive idea of, you know, we're going to go to the moon. You know, we're going to we're going to make it to the moon. Or if you think about, uh, you know, the Reagan politics, you know, we are going to be, you know, to gain peace through strength. You know, we're going to have this strong military and we're going to basically, you know, defeat the Soviet Union because we're going to protect ourselves. And that's going to be what we're going to do. But it's all this we, you know, we are in this we're doing this together. And it's very inclusive. It's the idea that we are all doing something together. And so the problem with negativity is it pushes against that core aspect of what politics is really all about, is what we are doing together. It's not about what it, it makes politics into not what we are doing together, but what we are going to do to others. How am I going to harm others and or, you know, at least gain advantage over others and things like that. And there's an element to which politics is always about that, right? It's always about gaining advantage over others. But on the other hand, there's this other core part of politics that says it's going to define what we are doing together, what we're all about. And so if it becomes all negative, then it's not so much about, you know, I have this vision of how we are going to be a better country. It becomes more about here's why this other person is just bad. And so it undercuts that 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 core aspect of politics. So to use a political science term, it's it's undermining the social capital that we mutually <laughs> experience uh, in society, the kinds of things that bind yeah. us together, that, get, that provide social trust and uh, cohesion and um, and goodwill towards each other, we're sort of undermining that with negative politics. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I think that's been a an increasing problem in the last few years. I mean, I think we've seen that, that our politics have gotten um, more bitter, um, especially with uh, you know some of the opposition to President Obama and some of the ways that the Obama administration handled the opposition. Um, you know, there's there's blame to be had on both sides, but uh, for whatever reason, right, that has become a lot more intense and a lot nastier. Which is, you know, to some extent, why we are getting two candidates who are the least popular. I mean, it's some some of this is about their merits, but some of it's also about the kind of national climate we've created, where it's increasingly hard for a Republican or a Democrat to think of members of the other party without sort of deep bitterness. Um, and you know, that's that wasn't always so to that extent. There wasn't always this level of polarization. Do you think it's possible? I think I asked Chris this question uh, a while ago, but do you think it's possible anymore for a candidate to, um, for a major party candidate to, for people to view them favorably, like nationally? I mean, because because of of how sort of polarized and split things are. I mean, is is this going to be sort of the new normal that that we're never going? Or mm-hmm. Never's a, a right. big word, but that 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 we're not going to see some see both parties put up somebody that everybody like kind of feels okay about how how favorably do you need them to be viewed i mean like because barack obama was still viewed favorably by over half of people right mm-hmm. it wasn't a lot over half okay, we'll, but, we'll, but compared we'll to these two line, are we going to see are we going to see that i mean is i think obama we'll see that the again. end of something yes. or yes i okay. think we'll or see is this a blip I think I think we'll see people in the low fifties in their approval rate while they're running. Um, yes, while okay. they're running, I think that will happen again. I don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of months, okay. but I think it'll happen again. Uh, you know, will we see somebody who has sixty to seventy percent of the country that's during the election campaign excited about them? That I find you know harder to see right sure. now. Maybe it happens, but it's harder to see in the current climate. See some positivity out of Andy. All right. So this is a. I mean. This is a good way to kind of begin to wrap up, but uh, think about the kind of people who are politically viable as leaders of the country who also enjoy widespread international acclaim. Uh, The list becomes vanishingly small quite quickly. 
um, possibly war heroes, um, military leaders, although military leaders transitioning into American electoral politics have had only very mixed success, and right. that includes President Eisenhower. Um, so, I mean, there's... Uh, um, there, there's sort of a, I mean, if we were voting for, you know, the Olympics is going on right now. Like, I think half of America would probably vote for Simone Biles for president. Were, were she qualified? <laughs> she's, what, 19 right now. So she's got to wait a few years before she can run. Michael Phelps. This would be interesting. Okay, Michael Phelps is, <laughs> let, let me just let me just play this out. He's uh, um, he's uh, widely adored in the United States. He's the all-time gold, most most gold medals of anyone in, in, uh, in history. Um, but imagine if he declared... I intend to seek the presidency of the United States. Now, again, he's probably what uh, thirty-two. He's not quite a qualified yet. But let's assume he's thirty-five, and he could he could he can make this happen. Um, uh, you could you could imagine the kind of process by which he would begin to be scrutinized, whichever party he declared for, how the other party would begin to criticize or probably you know or, or to into question his uh, his his bona fides. I mean, this would uh, he, he could quite quickly drop from being sort of universally acclaimed to being. Yet another political actor, and so I, I think Andy's right. I think you'll see candidates in the in the you know mid fifties or you know bumping up against sixty percent maybe, but never someone who's sort of just beloved nationally. But I can't think. I mean, I'm trying to think of who who we've had in that category, even in recent. I mean, in in you know since George Washington, right? I mean, so maybe you know Reagan at his best moments was probably around sixty, a little higher. Um, certainly FDR back in the day, um, but even you know some of the others who won big victories. I mean, people like Lyndon Johnson in '64, Richard Nixon in '72. I mean, they won in part because the other candidate was viewed as unacceptable, right? So it's you know, I mean, you have the famous sort of Daisy ad with Goldwater, right? In sure. your heart, you know, he might um, kind of rhetoric, right? You have McGovern, who's just seen as kind of this crazed left wing zealot, um, who you can't elect him to the presidency, so let's send the incumbent back. Um, so th- those weren't people who were sort of widely popular. They were just viewed as widely you know, better than the alternative, <laughs> right, which is kind of different. Well, so, okay, so, so to that point, then, um, as we think about the high negativity of both of these candidates, um, higher for Trump, but still quite high for Clinton as well. Right. Quite high. Uh, whoever wins this election, and right now it's looking uh, Clinton has a significant lead, but we have a long way to go. Right. Um, is there is their ability to govern already hamstrung? Are they already going to be limited in their ability to actually accomplish things as president because of this high negativity that they're going to enter the office with? Yes, I think so. I think they're definitely going to be hamstrung. I think they're more likely to be hamstrung, too, just because of the nature of um, sort of how the, the Congress is like to, likely to shake out. So the most likely scenario from you know my perspective at this point is that we're going to end up with a Democratic Senate and a Republican House, which my colleague Chris has been saying for over a year. Um, and I think he's right. I mean, and so that that looks likely. So no matter whether you get President Clinton or President Trump, uh, you know, either one of them is probably going to face one part of the Congress that's going to be in opposition to them and is not likely to feel the need to cooperate with a candidate who's or a president who's deeply unpopular with a huge portion of the American population. Um, and this becomes even more true if, and this is, I think, a real possibility this time, if the president wins the election with a minority of the popular vote, a plurality, but less than um, half, right? And so, you know, you can easily win a large victory in the Electoral College with less than half of the popular vote if there are third-party candidates who are drawing a lot of support. And we'll talk more about third-party and candidates and polling, too, yeah. uh, in subsequent right. episodes. And right now, podcast. they look like they're going to get a lot. Now, that often, you know, sort of fades away as the elections get closer. But because of the high negatives, I'm I'm wondering if it will endure a little bit more this time because I think I see a lot more people who are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to just cast a protest vote because I cannot vote for Hillary and I can't vote for Donald. So, you know, if a president gets in under those circumstances, too, then the other party has almost no motivation to cooperate. And as we've seen in the last few years, the parties have been very good about not cooperating with the other parties. So, um, you know, I unfortunately, I kind of expect that to continue. I wish it was otherwise. All right, gentlemen, we need to wrap for the day, but we're going to conclude this podcast uh, with a little thing we're going to try and start here, which is say, what should uh, our listeners be watching for in the next week? What kinds of things should they pay attention to, either look for in the news and um, and and, and uh, what, what should they be looking at or reading or paying attention to? Uh, I think the thing that I'll be looking for over the next week is to see if the Trump campaign can actually establish some kind of level of stability. 
Uh, we've seen him change uh, campaign managers a couple of times here just over the last couple of weeks. And the last 24 hours. Yes. Yeah, uh, Paul really, Manaf- really, yeah. If, if you're paying it, uh, <laughs> as we record this, Paul Manafort has uh, resigned and um, there's a... Uh, there's a major uh, shakeup in the Trump campaign. So, yeah, and we just so yeah, so it just keeps an ongoing yeah, it's just an ongoing phenomena here. We haven't really seen this as much with campaigns, you know, changing top level personnel like this, and uh, you know, at least at this level. <laughs> uh, and so, one of the things I'll be looking to see is if the Trump campaign can can actually settle in and maybe establish some level of of of, of uh, organizational stability. That's the main thing that I, I had as well. I'll jump off of that then and say, uh, let's not forget the media loves a, a cohesive narrative. And, no, and the one cohesive narrative the media likes to tell is the comeback story. So if, yes. if the Trump campaign, which is down in the polls right now, can begin to get some traction with some internal cohesion and can get some traction with maybe uh, most people believe that the, the lead that Clinton has will not be sustained through the duration of the rest of the election. Uh, and if Trump begins to climb back up in the polls it's a very easy story to write that uh that clinton is faltering that that trump is doing well that he's on the comeback trail and sometimes that becomes a a self-reinforcing narrative and i think that's something we should pay attention to as well and again she's not you know most polls hillary despite her lead is not really approaching 50 percent. so there are a lot of votes out there that are either undecided or currently going for third party candidates and if they could be reassured by trump that you know he's going to go in a little bit more conventional direction, then some of those people might be willing to get on board. So that's, I think Chris is right. That could be a narrative we see emerging. And again, coming back to the sort of floor ceiling thing, you know, it's hard to imagine that his floor can go much lower than it's already gone. I mean, if people aren't already alienated from his campaign by the, some of the things he's already said, um, then, you know, what else would alienate them? Which means, you know, the good news for Trump is that he probably really only can go up from here. Um, and, you know, that could contribute to the comeback narrative. Yeah, the thing that I'm most interested to watch is is with the Olymp the Olympics ending, the media <laughs> machine will lose that to talk about, and um and to see like what happens when it all yep. gets yep. kind of hyper focused back on, um on the campaign in terms of the amount of time that you know even your Today Show or something like that when everybody when you know Matt Lauer and everybody gets back from Rio like what are, what are they going to be talking about then? <laughs> um, because I think that's quite frankly a lot of people probably get their. Right, but a lot of people probably get their political news there more than right. you know more than more than some of these other places. So, so I'll be curious because that's about as mainstream as you're going to get. And I, I think it's you know as as Chris is about to wrap up here, I think it's worth mentioning um, we're going to be back for episode two in two weeks. Um, next week we're all scrambling to get ready for class and doing other things. So, um, so we're we're happy that you were uh, listening to this episode. Our next episode is going to be um, is September first, I think. That right? Is that that Thursday, September first? Yes. Yes. All right. So, um, so we hope you enjoyed this, and um, I'm going to hand it over to Chris to officially end. But, um, but two weeks we'll have our next episode, and from there we plan to be weekly up through and past the election. And. Um I, we we didn't actually talk about a good way to wrap this, and so although we've talked a bunch about the, about democracy and our commitment to sort of the polity and our democracy, I'll end with a Bethel's mascot and say, "Go Royals." <laughs>